Uh, it's good to be with you today. Uh, Jasper and my dad and a guy named Mike just got off a hike yesterday about 4.30 where we went 32 miles in North Arkansas. So if you see me just kind of fall over at some point today, that's why. Don't worry about it. I'll get back up. Uh, but my legs are, are like uh, chopped meat right now. It's awful. So uh, anyway, it's a lot of fun. My name's Kyle. I didn't introduce myself. So if you're visiting today or watching online for the first time, I uh, just want to say thank you for joining us today. Uh, we're going to continue in our series, The Big Picture. Today, we're, uh, we're going to just continue this thought of looking at the big picture, God's redemptive narrative throughout Scripture. And so we're going to be in Genesis chapter 12. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Genesis 12, and that's where we'll be. Uh, just to kind of catch up to speed, last week what we looked at was we, we asked and answered the question, what's wrong with the world? All right, because all of us can very plainly see in the world that something's not right, that there may be glimpses of right, there may be glimpses of very good, but it's not the very good world that we see at the end of Genesis 2 uh, that, or Genesis 1. Things are drastically different. And so in Genesis 3, we looked at uh, the fall of mankind and, and where sin came about, where evil came about, why it's pervasive in the world today. Uh, and, and we kind of got into a little bit of how that will be made right. But today, what I want to answer in, in kind of a two-part mini-series within a series is how will the world be fixed? So this is part one of how will the world be fixed? I think the answer is covenants. I think the world will be fixed through this covenant. I think we see covenants throughout Scripture, and it is, it's God initiating His covenant, His relationship with people, these rebellious people, through His Word or through promises that we begin to see the redemptive narrative unfold in Scripture. He, he uh, establishes a relationship with them. He establishes them as His people through covenants. They are uh, what we might call a conduit for the redemptive story. It's the way the redemptive story flows throughout Scripture. So in these covenants, what we see and what I kind of want to lay before you over the next couple of weeks is we see God's steadfast love and faithfulness more clearly in these covenants. So within the covenants, we see God's steadfast love and faithfulness most clearly. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into um, what we're going to talk about today. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. God, I thank You for Scripture. I thank You, Lord, that You've spoken to us through Your Word. I thank You, Lord, that we see in Scripture how You've initiated... Um, relationship with us through promises that we call covenants. And we can identify these clearly in Scripture, uh, God, that you've spoken to man and you've established him as your people. And uh, we see the same thing unfolding today in Christ. So, uh, Lord, my prayer today is that as we read these passages in the Old Testament and we, we glance at some in the New Testament, God, would you help us to see Jesus most clearly today? Would you help us to see your Son clearly today that we might find life in Him. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. So if you remember in Genesis 3, what happens is the serpent comes into the garden. The serpent's inhabited by uh, Satan himself, most likely, and he comes into the garden and he tempts Eve. He gets her to question God's Word, question God's motives, to think about it. Uh, she eventually takes of the fruit of the tree and eats of the fruit of the tree of which God had commanded them not to eat, the tree of knowledge of good and good and evil. When she does that and gives some to her husband and he does the same, <clears throat> they are there in their nakedness and they recognize this all of a sudden. They realize that we are naked now. Uh, they are now experiencing evil rather than just knowing what good and evil are. They know it by experience. And so they make for themselves fig leaves and loincloths. They hide themselves <clears throat> in the bushes uh, as they hear the Lord coming uh, in the cool of the day. The Lord calls out, where are you? The man answers, we hid ourselves from you. Why did you do that? He said, well, we were naked. How did you know you were naked? Did you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one that I told you not to eat from? The woman whom you gave to me did it. And she gave it to me. And, and he turns to Eve. God says to Eve, what is this that you have done? She says, the serpent made me do it. Uh, and then God pronounces curses on the serpent and Eve and Adam. Right? And so we read those last week. We saw those things. But in verse 
uh, 15, I pointed you towards that last week just kind of as a glimpse of hope. We saw in verse 15 and then in 20 and 21, these glimpses of hope in Genesis 3 where the gospel was being pronounced for, for really the very first time. Genesis 3.15 is what theologians call the proto-evangelium. Let's say that together because it's just a fun word to say, right? Say proto-evangelium, all right? One, two, three. Proto-evangelium, right? All that means is it's the first announcement of the gospel. Evangelium is the, the word for gospel story. That's gospel narrative, the story of God's redemption. Proto just means first, right? It's the very first time we see the gospel announced. Uh, some call this the Adamic, Adamic, Adamic covenant. Sorry, you know, language. Um, and, and because this is God making a promise to the couple about what's to come. Let's look at 3.15 real quick. This isn't where I'm going to hang out, but I'm just trying to remind you of this as we get into what is it that God meant by offspring. All right, so 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his head. Heal. Sorry, that was kind of a preacher trick. Turn to Genesis 12 and then make you read from Genesis 3. I apologize. Uh, so he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between Satan and the woman. It, it, there will be uh, strife between you always. You, you guys will be at war always between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. So that turns to a very singular mindset. He is one person. So now we're not just speaking of all the offspring, which is still true. We're still at war with Satan and his offspring, those who are doing his bidding, those are, who are his children, sons and daughters of wrath, as Genesis, uh, Ephesians 2 says. But now he turns at the latter part of 315 and he says, between you and him, between he and you. So he has very specific people in mind. He has Satan and Christ in mind here. This is why it's the proto-evangelium. He's announcing the gospel. You will bruise his heel. You'll hurt him. You'll harm him. But he's going to bruise your head. He's going to deal a death blow to you. And so what we're seeing is God is telling the serpent, there will be a man from the seed of this woman who will crush the head of you, your own head, Though he will be injured, you will injure him in the process. And that's precisely what happens with Jesus Christ and his birth, death, and resurrection. Amen? This is what Philippians 2 says as it's describing. And I promise I'm getting to Genesis 12. Don't, don't leave there. I'm just kind of building it up, all right? Getting, it, getting you there. Gen, uh, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, this is what Paul writes about Christ and this offspring. He says, though Jesus Christ was in the form of God in heaven, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, another, a thing that he should hold on to and not give up for a time. Watch. But he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Everybody say likeness of men. And being found in human form. Everybody say human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this, this Son of God who existed in heaven with the Father from eternity past, gives that up for a time. He doesn't count it as something to be held on to that he wouldn't give up. He empties himself of all that he has in heaven and takes on the likeness, the form of man. He humbles himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this is what it says about him. It says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that, at, uh, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Praise God. So this is the gospel story. This is what we have being pronounced in Genesis 3.15 is what we see here in Philippians 2. John 3.16 is another good reference. I'll reference it later. Um, so, what happens between Adam or creation, that, that kind of creation and fall event, to the birth and death of Jesus Christ, which is roughly 4,000 years later? 
What takes place? What happens from Genesis 3 to the gospel accounts of Jesus' birth, death, and resurrection? Well, offspring happens. Everybody say offspring. All right, Genesis 3.15, that word offspring is picked back up in Genesis chapter 4. 4, 4.25 through 26 says this. So I told you last week about how evil immediately came into the world, right? Cain and Abel, uh, the sons of Adam and Eve. Cain kills Abel because he's jealous of what he has received from God. God warns him, don't don't do it. Sin's crouching at your door, it's seeking to devour you. Um, But he does it anyway. So Cain kills Abel. Cain is then cursed. Abel's dead. Adam and Eve are left at that moment without a son who could be the seed, the offspring. And so this is what we read in 425 through 26 after the death of Abel and the curse on Cain. It says, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, everybody pay attention to this wording, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So you can't tell me that in Genesis 3.15, as Adam and Eve are leaving the garden in 20 and 21, that they didn't understand there was going to be an offspring, right? What did Adam name his wife? Eve, the mother of all living. He knew that there was going to be an offspring who comes who would bring life again. So the offspring instead of Abel... um, So she says, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Wow. So you see kind of the beginnings of a restoration, the beginnings of people calling upon the name of the Lord again. You see God initiating this um, new uh, covenant or redemptive narrative with people, right? with people turning to the Lord again. So the rest of Genesis traces this single line of Seth's offspring, Seth's descendants. And eventually what happens is it produces a king by which all the nations will be blessed. From Seth's family, we have a man by the name of Noah. Most of us know who Noah is, right? Noah's the guy who was the one lone faithful man on the earth, him and his family. And so God comes to him and he says, build an ark because a flood is coming. I'm going to destroy the earth and every living creature on it. But I want you to build an ark and I will, I'm going to put on that ark with you animals and your family and you will be all that survives. And so he does it. He covenanted with uh, God, then covenants with Abraham, or, sorry, with Noah after the flood, saying that he will no longer destroy the world. He won't destroy the world again because of its pervasive evil by a flood. That that won't happen again. God puts a rainbow into the sky and makes a promise to never destroy the world by flood again, even though man's ways. And God says this in Genesis eight. He says, even though man's ways are evil from his youth. He says, even though man is still evil from youth, I will never flood the earth again. So God tells Noah and his family, he says, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. This is also where we see God tell man to eat animals now. You should should enjoy them as food. I've given you every living creature as food. From Noah's line, a man by by the name of Abram is born through the line of Shem, which is Noah's first son. Abram is born further down in that line to a guy named Terah. In Matthew 1, what we see is the genealogy. Most of us kind of skip over these genealogies as we come to them in Scripture. I want to encourage you to try not to do that as difficult as it may be. Matthew 1 is one of those we definitely need to understand because what we see in Matthew 1 is that God has built a family in Christ Jesus out of a bunch of sinners and undeserving people. Amen? This is the beauty of Matthew 1. But Matthew 1 also shows us how we get from Abraham to Christ. That from Abraham to David is 14 generations uh, thereabout, and from David to Jesus is 14 generations. And and so we we get uh, Abram's line going from David all the way to Jesus. We see in these covenants that God makes, with, with, starting here with Adam, we see God's faithfulness 
and his steadfast love clearly. We see that God is doing exactly what he said he's going to do. Now, what I want to talk to you about today a little bit further in detail is Abram's um, covenant, this covenant that God makes with Abram. I want to talk a little bit about it, and then next week I want to get into a little bit of what happens with Moses later in this line. So God comes to Abram, who is from the line of Seth, as I said a moment ago, and he makes an invitation for Abram to join him in something amazing. Now you can look at Genesis 12, all right? We got there. I told you we would. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country. Everybody say your country. And your kindred. Everybody say your kindred. And your father's house. Everybody say your father's house. To the land that I will show you. And I will make, a, I will make of you a great nation. Everybody say I will make. And I will bless you. Everybody say I will bless. And I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Wow. Wow. I want you to notice the language there. We've been sticking with this idea that God's redemptive story is the story of God's people uh, dwelling in God's place with God's people or um, in God's presence within God's place for God's purpose right and so this is what we have here we have uh, place presence and and purpose and people taking place so uh, go from your country that's place and your kindred that's your people and your father's house that's your purpose Abram should have been the guy to carry on his father's um uh, um history, right? He should have been the guy that carries that on, that he would have stayed there in the land. He would have dwelt in that land. That would have been his land. That would have been his people. The, the possessions of his father would have become his possessions. But what does God invite him to do? He invites him to step out of that, to step out of his identity. He was Terah's son. He was dwelling in Terah's place. He was with Terah's people. He was there for Terah's purpose. But what does God invite him to become? He says, Go to the land that I will show you. So now we have God's presence at play. It was in the presence of Terah. Now he's going to be in the presence of God. Go to the land that I will show you, which is also place, right? Land. And I will make of you a great nation. This is people. These are God's people. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. Notice there in that, I will bless those. Everybody say those. And him. Everybody say him. All right, we're going to come to that later, but I want you to notice it now. Who dishonors you. I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. What is that? That's purpose. It's God's purpose. So we have God's presence, God's people, God's place, and God's purpose present here. This is what God is inviting Abram to come into. He's come out of your own purpose, your own place, your own people, uh, your own name, and come join my name. Come join my presence, my people, my place, and, um, and, and my purpose. But there's a problem. Genesis 11 lets us know this problem. It's, it's no coincidence that Genesis 11 we read that Sarah, Abram's wife, is barren. We, meet, we read that and then immediately, just a few verses later, we have God coming to Abram saying, hey, I'm going to make from you a great nation. Abram had to have been like, what in the world? There's no way you're going to make a great nation for me. My wife can't even conceive. She's barren. So God's invitation, the same is going to be true for us, forces Abram to abandon the normal sources of personal identity and security, namely family, homeland, purpose. He forces him out of that into something greater. To obey, Abraham must trust God by faith. Not by sight. He could see the other things. He knows, I've got this right here, but God is calling me out of that into something else. That's going to take faith. Amen? I can't see that yet. In fact, what I do know about what he's promising is it's impossible because my wife can't conceive. So how will I have a great 
nation. All human support is largely removed from Abram, and now he is forced to trust God. And regardless of Sarah's barrenness, Abram chooses to go. He chooses to trust God. He chooses to do what he has said, or what God has called him to to do. He wants to see, I think, God's steadfast love and faithfulness firsthand. There's no doubt he had heard about it. There's no doubt he had knew something about God, but now he's wanting to experience God firsthand. I want to see his faithfulness. I want to see his steadfast love. And after some time, Abram's fame had been growing. Abram, is, he's conquering things. He's, he's still without a child, but he's conquering And he's just rejected in Genesis 14 the victory spoils of a battle that the king of Sodom had offered to him. He says, here, take these spoils of this battle. And Abram rejects it. He doesn't want it because he wants it God's way. And then in Genesis 15, we read this, 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Again, it's no coincidence that he had just rejected an earthly reward, and then God comes in and says, I'm going to give you a heavenly reward, a divine reward, and it will be great. Amen? But Abram said, there's some doubt here, but Abram said, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, most likely just a servant boy possibly captured in a battle. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. So he's saying, God, you promised this. And he's recalling the promise. He's saying, you told me there would be an offspring, that this offspring would be my heir, and that a great nation would come from me. But but God, I'm not seeing it yet. I'm not seeing it yet. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. Wow. And he brought him outside. I love this. And he said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Has anybody ever been outside in a place where there's no light around you and it's clear as can be? There's, there's no, um, no humidity, no nothing really. You can just see as clear as you can into, into the stars. Anybody ever done that? Raise your hand. Yeah, a couple of you. If you haven't done that yet, you need to make that a point to do that. But just imagine being brought outside. I mean, this is before electricity, right? There's not street lights around. There's not things happening around. There's not city buildings and all of this that would keep Abram from being able to look straight into the heavens, as it's called, into the sky and and see just billions of stars. What's interesting, too, is if you'll take a a telescope and and you focus in, like you're looking at a star, but you take a telescope and you look at that same star, now all of a sudden you can see dozens and even hundreds at times other stars around it so even to our naked eye we're not seeing all the stars that exist this is what god does he says abram come out of your tent come outside with me look into the sky and he says number the stars look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them (laughs) what's god saying you can't number them you can't number them And then what does he tell him? So shall your offspring be. So shall your offspring be. So he's saying, look into the stars, number them if you can. You can't, but if you can. So shall your offspring be. Do you understand what's happening here? The guy whose wife is barren, can't have any children. Now he's being told that boy... Eliezer of Damascus is not going to be your heir. Your very own son is going to be your heir. In fact, your descendants will outnumber these stars. We're going to get into a little more of what that means. I think it'll, it'll mean more to you soon. So, 
Abram has this conversation with the Lord. And the Lord says, count the stars if you can. So shall your offspring be. And then this is what we read from Abraham, about Abram after he did this. It says, and he believed the Lord. And the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. He believed the Lord and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. And then God makes a covenant with him at the end of these verses here. There's another little ritual that takes place, some cutting of some animals, and, and God appears to him and, and he makes this covenant. He says, to your offspring I give this land. And he goes into all the ites. <laughs> In Genesis 17, God confirms this covenant with a sign, circumcision. Now, if I'm Abram, I'm asking, you know, Noah got a rainbow, God, <laughs> and, you're, and you're giving me circumcision. <laughs> and I've got to do it to myself. And all those men over there, I've got to convince them of this. It doesn't seem quite fair, but that's the way it was. <laughs> so Abraham is then called, I'm sorry, Abram is then called Abraham. His wife is renamed from Sarah to Sarah. God promises. At this point, Abram had already tried to kind of circumvent what God had promised. He sleeps with his wife's servant girl and Ishmael is born. And he thinks that this will be the way. You know, if God's going to take so long, surely we can go ahead and speed this process up. But God again tells him, Ishmael is not going to be your heir. Isaac is. He tells him who it'll be. He tells him it's going to happen. And it does. You see, we see God's steadfast love and faithfulness most clearly in these covenants. We, we see God continuing to do exactly what He says He's going to do, and that is be faithful and loving toward His people, establishing them as such. Now, I want to ask you this. How do we see it today? Because I think this is where it really matters. Like, we can read about these covenants, and they, they're, they're really amazing on paper, but how do we connect the dot from Adam to Abraham to Christ, and then to us. What's taking place here? Well, I mentioned earlier that covenants are the conduit by which we see God's redemptive story flowing throughout Scripture. It's the way that we can read it and we can understand the redemptive narrative. All of these covenants in the Old Testament are building into one new covenant in the New Testament. It's the covenant of God's grace in Christ. So how do we see it today? Ultimately, God fulfills His covenant with Abraham in Jesus Christ. And its blessings then extend to all those who believe in Jesus Christ. It's not by works. So the Jews wanted to argue that Abraham was righteous because of his work, because of his faith. But the problem with that is, it wasn't his work that it was counted to him as righteousness. It was his faith that was counted to him as righteousness. That's why Paul writes Romans 4. This is what he's arguing in Romans 4. It says it's the faith of Abraham that's counted as righteousness, not his works. Faith should absolutely produce works. Yes, we should follow the Lord. Even if he's saying, go kill your own son on that mountain over there, the one whom I said would be your heir. I mean, that didn't make any sense at all, but Abraham believed God still, and it was counted to him as righteous. His son was saved. That was a work showing the faith. Amen? But in Romans 4, Paul writes, if Abraham was justified by works, this is verse 2 and 3, he has something to boast about. So if it's by him, he can boast about himself. He can say, I'm justified by my works. I believed God, and, and so I followed God, and I did all these amazing things. But it was the believing God that was counted as righteousness, not the doing things for God that's counted as righteousness. So he says he would have something to boast about, but not before God, Paul says. And then Paul goes on to say, for what do the Scriptures say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. He quotes Genesis. So what I want you to understand is when God tells Abram that in you all the nations of the world will be blessed, or in you all the nations will be blessed, that we see in Genesis 12, that becomes in Christ all the nations receive the blessings. Amen? All the nations receive the blessings in Christ in Romans 4. Look at 23 through 25. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for 
his sake alone, for him to understand, but for ours also. This is the point Paul's making. We need to understand that it's counted to us as righteousness. Our faith is just as it was for Abraham. It was written for our sake so that we wouldn't have these foolish debates about our works. He says it will be counted to us who believe in Him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So Paul is saying it's counted to us who believe in the God who gave His own Son, Jesus Christ, to become sin for us who knew no sin, right? That we might become the righteousness of God. He's delivered up for the trespasses and raised for our justification. If you believe that... You are an heir of Abraham. You're an heir of Christ. Amen? You're co-heirs. So righteousness is counted to us as ours through faith or through belief in God, just as it was Abraham in Genesis 12. Romans 10, 9 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that, Christ, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Confession and belief. It's faith that God did give his son Jesus Christ for our sins. And believing that gives us his very own righteousness. So how does this happen? Well, it happens through Jesus Christ's resur- death and resurrection. Romans 3.23-25 says this, Romans 3.23 on down is talking about how the Old Testament saints' faith was made them righteous, is that God was storing up their sins to be laid on Jesus Christ. So even their faith is not different than our faith. God was just storing up their sins to lay it on Christ Himself. Just as our faith now is in Christ, because what they knew by faith, we know by name, and, and so now we proclaim Christ and we receive His righteousness. So Romans 3, 23-25, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But for, um, sorry, wrong verse, and are justified, so all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, all are going to be justified this way. This is how all will be justified or should be justified. It's by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or as a payment, a sacrifice by His blood to be received by faith. To be received by faith. We are justified freely by God's grace from our sins through faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ. It's His sacrifice for our sins that makes us righteous when we place our belief in Him. This means that we, just like Abraham, are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. Amen? So Christ issues an invitation to believe in Him. This is what Christ comes on the scene proclaiming. People are gathering around. People are wanting to be His disciples like crazy. Most of them just wanted kind of the benefits of being His disciples without really the commitment of being His disciples. We, we don't see that a whole lot today, though, do we? But this is what's taking place. People didn't want to follow Him. So this is what Jesus looks them all in the eye and He says this. He says, if any of you would come after Me, if any of you would follow Me, if any of you wants to be My disciple." then you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. He says, if any of you wants to uh, gain his life, he must lose it for my sake. But if any of you seeks to gain your life for yourself, you will surely lose it. It'll be lost. So we find life, true life, in belief in Christ but not just some mental assent belief as though we say, as the Muslims do, that Christ existed, that Christ was a good man. Most people will acknowledge Christ was a good man. Over half evangelicals in a recent study admit that that they say Jesus was a good teacher, but they're not sure that He was God. What? You, You can't even be a Christian and say that Jesus is not God. That's impossible. You can't even say Jesus was a good teacher and say He wasn't God because He said, I am from the Father. I do what the Father says. I am the Son of God. 
He equates himself to God. Amen? And, and so this is what makes us in Christ. And if any of you wants to follow him, any of you wants to be his disciple, you have to deny your house, yourself. You have to say, I'm getting rid of that homeland. I'm getting rid of that people over there. I'm getting rid of that name over there. And I'm taking on the name that I'm being called into, this new identity that I'm being called into. And you run headlong after it. You don't look back as though that land is something to be desired. You keep your hand to the plow and you serve Christ. This is what it means to follow Him. This is what it means to believe in Him. This belief in action. It's belief that says, yes, God, I'm going to leave my homeland, I'm going to leave my possessions, and I'm going to follow you. I'm going to be counted as an exile in this world, a sojourner in this place. And that's what Christ is inviting people into when He says, if any of you wants to be my disciple. So when you believe in Christ... When you trust Him for your righteousness, when you confess your sins to Him and you lay your righteousness on Him, you, are, um, you can rest, rather, in this new covenant of grace, which is initiated by God. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. God is initiating this new covenant of grace. He's giving His Son. Everything that happened from Adam to, to Abraham to David, to the prophets, to the birth of Christ, was about Christ. For God so loved the world that He gave His Son, His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Whoever believes will have life. Will have life. For Christ, uh, John, uh, sorry, 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. Amen. How are we getting to God? How are we going to be in right relationship with God? The same way Abraham was through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Old Testament saint sins were laid on him. New Testament saint sins were laid on him. Our sins are laid on Christ. This is how we come to God. It's because of his covenant love, his steadfast faithfulness, his steadfast love and faithfulness. And now, and now it's becoming clear how all the nations will be blessed in Abraham, isn't it? Are you beginning to see how all of this is tying together? How all the nations are going to be blessed in Abraham? It will be through belief in Jesus Christ. This is how it's going to happen. Remember when God told Abraham, I will bless those who bless you in, in uh, Genesis 12. And him, does everybody say those? Everybody say him. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. You remember when we read that earlier, right? Notice the plural those that's contrasted with the singular him. Those who bless you and him who um, dishonors you. The blessing people receive is based here on how they receive, is largely based on how they receive Abraham. Well, what do we know now? The same is true. The blessing that you receive from God, namely righteousness, is based on how you receive Christ, whether or not you receive Christ. Right? If you will receive Christ, if you will take Christ and His righteousness as your own, if you'll confess your sins to God and say, I have no righteousness of my own, you will be saved. You will be saved. You will receive his very own righteousness to cover your sins. If you will not receive Him, if you will not turn in faith to Jesus, you will be cursed. You will remain in your sins. You will remain in your unrighteousness. You will be left on your own to answer to God on Judgment Day. On the day that you go to meet Him, you will, you will be left to answer for that. What did you do with Jesus Christ? Did you receive Him? Or did you dishonor him? Did you bless him or dishonor him? Will you be blessed in that moment? Or will you be cursed in that moment? It's going to be based on how you receive Christ. So I urge you, urge you unbelievers, turn in faith to Jesus Christ. I urge you believers, never give up your faith in Jesus Christ 
for something else. But one of the glorious takeaways that we have to look at today, that, that's, a, that's certainly a major one. One of the most glorious things that I want to show you in these passages is, 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 is the understanding of the inheritance that Christians receive. The blessing that comes. The, the, the blessing that we receive is eternal dwelling, now in this life and fully in the next with God. We receive an eternal dwelling with God. Now He dwells in us through His Holy Spirit as believers. Then we will dwell with Him in body as believers. Amen? And we'll do it with a multitude of others in God's place, with God's people, enjoying God's presence for God's purpose. Amen? We will inherit the earth on the last day. Remember, God said, count the stars if you can, so shall your offspring be. We are offspring by faith. This is why I said we want to pay attention to this offspring language, because this is what Romans 4.13 points out. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring, which Paul's already made clear, are those who believe, right? We saw that earlier in Romans 4. Those are his offspring. All who believe are the offspring of Abraham. That he would be heir of the world. So the offspring will become the heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So he's saying the offspring will inherit the earth, will be the heirs of the world. We have every reason, every good reason to believe that the new heavens and the new earth will be filled with trillions of believers. Count the stars if you can, so shall your offspring be. Trillions of believers. Amen? In fact, Abraham knew something of this. He had some insight into this. Many of the Old Testament saints did too, even though he doesn't see it for himself. Hebrews 11 lays this out for us. It says, For he was, speaking of Abraham, looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer was uh, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age. She was old. Since she considered him faithful who had promised. I love what this line says. As it just shows the immense power of God. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead. <laughs> Abraham was 100 years old. Him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. So now we're not only counting stars, we're counting grains of sand. Holy smokes. Wow. And then he says about, the writer of Hebrews says about all the people he's just mentioned in verses 1 through 13, he says, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. Right? They didn't see it yet. They hadn't seen Christ yet. They hadn't seen the people yet. They haven't seen this homeland to come. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, so they believed in them, they, they saw them by faith, greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking homeland. So he's saying Abraham in the way that he lived, in the way that he talked, in the way that he walked made it clear he was seeking a heavenly homeland, a different homeland, not even the land that was promised to him, something beyond that. He said if they had been thinking of that land which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. God would have said, here, have at it. You see this with Lot's wife. Poof, pillar of salt. All right? But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. Who is it that God's not ashamed to be called their God? Those who understand, those who believe, those who desire a better country, a dwelling with Him. For He has prepared for them a city. He's prepared for them a city. And we remind you, week one, we looked at the beginning and the end. Let me read to you a couple of passages about what the end looks like, and then I'll be finished. Revelations 5, 8 through, 8, 8 through 10. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Lamb is capitalized here. They're talking about Christ. Each one had a harp 
And they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. (laughs) And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. With your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Praise God. Praise God. Revelation 7, 9 through 10. John continues there. I can't imagine what these revelations were like. But but here he is again, caught into another one. And after this, I looked. And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. That sounds a bit like the count the stars if you can, doesn't it? That no one could count. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. God's people enjoying God's presence within God's place for God's purpose. This is what redemption looks like. It happens through the conduit of covenants, all leading to the one covenant of grace found in Christ Jesus, that blood of the Lamb being slain for our sins, making a nation too large to count from every tribe, tongue, and nation, making a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Amen? This this is the homeland that we're seeking. This is the homeland we're destined for. Amen? Amen. So I urge you, trust in the Lord. Live as saints in the land. Live as exiles in the land, knowing you're headed for a better homeland. Desire that. Live for it. Work for it. Show Christ to all. Know that all of your work will not be in vain if it's done in the name of the Lord. Amen? He's going to bless it. Men, live as though you are living for the twelfth generation from your name. Amen? You are building God's kingdom. You're building God's kingdom. Jesus, when He teaches us to pray, He says, pray then this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are doing. We are building the kingdom of God, as we follow God. Amen? We'll be blessed, brothers and sisters. Be blessed. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, we love you. God, what covenant faithfulness we see here. We thank you, Lord, that we can follow the thread of covenants throughout Scripture and see that you are steadfast in love, always faithful. Your love enduring from generation to generation. God, we thank you that we can look upon these and see that our sin, just as it was for Abraham and all those Old Testament saints, was laid on your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for giving your Son to die for our sins that we might be made righteous, that we might be co-heirs with Christ. We might have a dwelling in heavenly places, as Ephesians 1 tells us, that we are filled with the Holy Spirit now as a sign and a seal of that inheritance, a guarantee of what's to come. God, would you work it in us? Would you who who are faithful to begin the work, be faithful to complete the work in us also? Help us, Lord, as men and women, boys and girls who love Jesus Christ above all else, help us to serve Him in all that we say and do. God, would you purge from us that old man, that old flesh, that old way, that we too, that we too might build the kingdom of God in this world, in this life. 
God, we thank you that we can see in Scripture a glorious inheritance kept for you of the saints. It's your inheritance. And God, we're brought to you by your son Jesus. And we cannot wait. These services we do on Sunday, these are but a glimpse, but a foretaste of what we'll know on those days. God, would you ignite our heart with desire for that place? Ignite our heart with desire to see people saved, to see people brought out of their sins and into the marvelous light of Christ. God, would you help us to get outside of ourselves, outside of our own cares, our own worries, and get our faces out of our phones dwell in this land as exiles, proclaiming the way to a better land. God, we pray for your will to be done in the upcoming election. We pray for your will to be done in this country. And God, we know that your will will be done. And whatever that may be, we know that this is not our final resting place. So God, help us to live for you day in and day out. God, you're always blessing the hand of faithful men and women who trust in you. Help us to be those men and women. God, I pray for anyone listening now who doesn't know you, who's far from you, as we once were, counted far off, alienated from the righteousness of God. Father, would you save them from their sins by your Son? Would you draw them to yourself through your Holy Spirit? Would you birth inside of them new life? Would you regenerate them? God, give them a heart of flesh that they might call on the name of Jesus Christ and be saved. Grant them faith, Lord. We ask for it. We love you. Would you be with us now as we sing, as we proclaim your goodness and song? Help us, Lord to build your kingdom as you build our lives. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.